Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm uh, one of the executive pastors here at Res Church, and we are finishing up this little uh, section of Ephesians. We've been going through Ephesians on and off now for just over a year. Uh, The reason that we meet on Sunday mornings, according to the Bible, is not primarily to worship God, believe it or not, because we're actually called to worship God every single day in all areas of our life. And so Sunday doesn't suddenly become sort of of special, like extra holy, we worship God on Sundays. Um, to, to, To read the Bible that way is to misunderstand this royal priesthood that every one of us has been called into. The the reason we primarily gather on Sunday mornings, the the big reason, is to encourage one another. And we finished singing that third song, and I needed like a five-minute break to just stop crying because it was just so encouraging. I, I am so proud of you. I know some of you don't like loud music. And, and this congregation was yelling praise to God. I watched a lot of college football yesterday. It's amazing how loud people can get about teenagers playing football. And then, and then come in to the, to the gathering the next day and sort of limp-wristed, you know, sort of half-heartedly toss some semi-affectionate praise toward the Lord. But not, not today. Amen. Amen. Uh, and then just as I'm recovering from the third song, we bring up a community group of people that are going to go on mission in Romania. Uh, And God is doing phenomenal things in our congregation, in the body. And and if the purpose, which it is, of the gathering is to be encouraged, I'm done. We we don't even need the sermon. (laughs) It's a quick one today. I'm feeling great. Unfortunately, I wrote some notes, so stick around for a little while. Uh, let me tell you about some things that are coming up. So just take out your pen for just a second. Um, you're going to hear about these things. Uh, we text you. We email you. We're in Discord trying to message you. We're on social media, right? We're all over the place trying to make sure you understand what's coming and what you can be involved in and how much we desire you to find community and relationships and places in the body of Christ here at Res Church. Uh, Today, we are finishing up this little section of Ephesians. Next week, we have a one-off. It's just a, it's going to be an interesting week. It's called, What If I Won the Lottery? So we're just going to take a look at what it would look like if we won the lottery. None of you have ever thought about that, right? (laughs) Uh, Today's group launch, it's just our big day to encourage you to take a risky step into a community group, to give it a try. And for some of you, you've tried that before and it didn't work out. And I would just submit to you that sometimes it takes more than one try at it. Uh, it's, it's risky to open yourself up to the potential that it doesn't work out, uh, but it's worth it. And some of the 
greatest growth in my life with the Lord has come because uh, I begin to build connections with other people. I allow them into my life, and over time, I begin to see Christ through them. Doing that today, doing a one-off next week, and then in two weeks, we're starting a series called Outdated. And we're going to look at all of these principles about relationships that the Bible tells us how to live out and really ask the question, if you lived these relationships the way the Bible tells you to live them, is that just an outdated way of thinking? And would it really work? And so it uh, hopefully will lend itself to a very evangelistic nature. It will give you an opportunity to invite people into Uh, that series and some of the things that we will do in that series. We're going to have couples devotions for couples that we'll hand out. We have a daily devotion that we wrote uh, that we have for you. We have a singles devotion that we purchased for singles to go through during that series. Uh, We're working right now on a marriage conference on November 11th and 12th. We have some out-of-town speakers coming in. Uh, We have a lot going on in that series. Our hope is that you will be able to use that as an evangelistic tool with the people that God has put in your life to bring into the body of Christ, and hopefully hear the gospel. Uh, in the past, we've found that anytime we talk about marriage or relationships or parenting or work, employer, employee-employer type stuff, any of those types of series have always lent themselves very well and been opportunities for you to engage the people in your life that are far from the Lord and bring them in to hear what God has to say about life. Amen? All right, it's coming. So we got a lot coming up. Uh, right after that, we're, man, we're into the Christmas series. That came fast. And then right after that, uh, we have our Resiversary. That's the five-year anniversary of this church. Wow. Yeah. You blink and it's been five years, right? All right. Let's start here. We're going to be in Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. I'm just going to read it to you real quickly, and then we're going to walk through uh, what the Apostle Paul is trying to get across to us in this portion of Ephesians chapter 5. He says this in Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Three things I want to walk through today in these verses. An effective Christian walk is marked by three massive practical actions. The first is dedicated time. The second is focused attention. And the third is passionate affection. So we're going to look at dedicated time, focused attention, and passionate affection. In verse 15, it says, look carefully how you walk. 
Now this whole letter, I don't know if you remember, uh, we've been in Ephesians for a year, so the first three chapters of Ephesians are largely doctrinal. They're almost all theological. They're talking about the truths of God, the truths of the kingdom, uh, what the gospel is and why Christ coming and dying and being resurrected matters and what it looks like to be a son or a daughter of the king and what our inheritance looks like. And it's three chapters of the foundation of the faith. And then in chapter four, Paul turns really practical. And we're in the practical section. We're in the application. What do you now go do with all of these truths that he has established? And, and so we've now multiple times in Ephesians, and this is a, a term that he's going to use in his other letters, talked about this idea of a walk, a walk. And we keep revisiting it because he keeps mentioning it over and over again. And, and, and the Apostle Paul is trying to hammer something that, that it, it, there's this active portion of the faith. There's all these things that were done for you by God and Jesus. And now there's what you do with the gift that you've been granted. And that is the walk, the walk. And so he says this, look carefully how you walk. Look carefully how you walk. What he, he, he establishes this in almost every epistle, almost every letter to a church. He says, how you walk matters. Are you free in Christ? Absolutely. But how you walk matters. You can't earn salvation, but, but once you've been saved, how you pursue Jesus Christ matters the most. It matters. It's everything. To live is Christ. We just sing it. Your life, once saved, once you've been saved, is now entirely and utterly sold out to walk out this faith, to pursue Christ, to walk in step with the Spirit, to work out this salvation, to do life with the church. And it matters. How you do it matters. It will impact your life. It will impact your joy. It will impact your peace. It will impact your contentment. It will impact your health, your closeness and relationship to God. I mean, we all realize that when you don't feel close to God, that's not God's fault. Right? That's my fault. If I don't feel close to God, God's not doing something. It's not like, hey, I'm going to take a week off, a little PTO. You got this, right, Daniel? God's always there desiring a deeper relationship with me. So when I don't feel connected to God, it's not because God's doing something. It's because I'm doing something or not doing something. So my walk matters. How I live this life out matters. It doesn't just impact me. It impacts my family. It impacts my friends. It impacts my coworkers. It impacts, it impacts the, the lost person that God specifically put in my path in my life so that I could impact the light of the gospel. And if I don't live out this life like it matters, they never meet Christ. It matters. It matters. You're like, man, we came out of the gate a little hot here, Pastor Daniel. If we could just slow that down. It matters. Say it matters. It matters. Not as, listen to what Paul says, not as, so you're, you're going to look carefully at your walk, you're going to look, look carefully, how am I living out this life? I'm constantly doing this self-evaluation. I'm doing this assessment. How am I living out this life? Not in a, in a righteousness, not am I earning something, not do I look good to other people at Res Church, but I'm looking to go, 
Am I pursuing Christ? And then what is the standard that I'm looking at? He says, not as unwise, but as wise. Now, here's the really horrible thing that you probably at some point may have realized in your life. No one thinks they're unwise. You ever notice that? Everyone thinks they have good advice. Trust me, I get it all. No one's like, man, I'm really foolish and unwise, and I just wish someone would come in and like give me all the right to sit. No one says that. Everyone's like, I know what I'm doing. You should listen to me more. What, what, what does he mean? Not as unwise as what is wise. Don't, don't misinterpret what he means. We're not talking about intellect. We're not talking about IQ. We're not talking about emotional intelligence or competencies. When he says not as unwise, here's what he means. You can't live your life once Jesus saves you as if God's not real and Jesus didn't die on the cross. Does that make sense? Because everything about spiritual knowledge, everything about spiritual wisdom that God begins to tell us about and Paul begins to explain and write out in practical terms is really you getting a better, broader, deeper understanding of what the implications of the gospel are. So, so everybody before they're saved is called foolish. Go look at Romans 1, right? You're foolish. You're ignorant. You're blind. You can't see it. You don't understand it. All of the things that are happening in the spiritual realm to you are just, we don't, even, we don't even see them or understand them or comprehend them. And all of a sudden, the lights come on. And Jesus regenerates us. And it's like, oh, and for most of us, after we were saved, uh, within the next few weeks or months, in actuality, we started to realize we were a whole lot more sinful than we ever thought we were. I'm like, man, I thought I was a mess, but I'm really a mess. Like, wow, how am I not dead? And that, that builds a gratitude and a dependence on God. So when he says wise, he's saying the life after Christ needs to be lived as if Christ is a reality. And you're like, well, no duh, except we don't do that. We go back and we start making decisions in our life as if Jesus never saved us. You start making decisions on secular terms. You start using human logic. And we, we intermix these two all the time and end up in really dangerous situations. Listen, my, my pre-Jesus days, they, they weren't just dumb and ignorant, they were sinful and stupid and harmful and destructive and toxic and poisonous. They were vomit. And we don't go back to vomit. That's not wise, that's unwise, amen? Okay. Secular, secular logic and, and, and secular intellect and secular wisdom, it, it's good, don't get me wrong, it's good, but we start with Scripture first. Okay, this is the, the formula of the Bible, is we start with Scripture to figure out how to walk out this life, and then if Scripture is silent about a specific decision, then we work into seeking the Spirit and seeking godly counsel, and yes, you're gonna use some human logic at times, but it always starts with the Bible, and if there's a conflict, it's the Bible first. Does that make sense? Why? Because human logic is fallible, but the Bible is infallible. Human logic depends on me, and I'm not very trustworthy. 
Your emotions lied to you. Disney got it wrong. Never follow your heart. Amen? Like all, every time I turn on one of these old Disney films, and you realize they're actually pretty old, right? This isn't just a new thing. You turn them on and you hear that and you go, and I pause and I'm like, don't listen to anything the princess just said. She's a moron. Unpause. All right, go ahead. Yes, I, I pour water all over my, that's just what you do. Because it's dumb stuff. Why? Because your heart lies to you. It's deceitful. Don't trust your emotions. Trust scripture. Stop catching feelings. Then <laughs> human logic will lead you to do some really twisted, dumb stuff. Can I can be honest? Like uh, human logic has led me down some really dumb paths. One, one small incremental step at a time where I logiced my way to that. Like human logic will, will somehow convince you you should go date a non-Christian and it's gonna turn out well. Human logic will tell you that you should take that job where you work 80, 85 hours a week and everything's gonna be great because you're providing for your family. Human logic will have you spending lavishly and giving in a greedy manner like you're some CEO when that is not what the Bible is calling you to. The number of times I've heard a Christian tell me, well, God helps those who help themselves. And I'm like, that's not even a verse. It's not in the Bible. You made that up. Don't do it. Don't be unwise. The life after Jesus saves us is lived as if Jesus saved us. We walk in the light as children of the light. And then he's going to say this. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then this one, this one burns me. This one keeps me up at night. This one makes my stomach hurt. This one, this one just gnaws at me. Making the best use of the time. That should, that should keep you up. That should motivate you. Because what is he saying? He's saying there had better be an urgency bubbling up in your life because time is short. Time is instant. It, it is, I, we're, we're about to celebrate a five-year anniversary. Where did that go? You bring your kid home from the hospital, you turn around, she's getting a driver's license. It's instantaneous, and you lose track of it. Colossians 4, 5 would say this way, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, and then making, this is Paul again, making the best use of the time. Time is your most precious commodity for the kingdom. Time. Time. You never get it back. You can never get it back. Once you spend it, it's gone. Dedicated Time is the first thing that we're talking about as an action of the Christian life. Where is my time spent? What is worthy of my time? Do I manage my schedule or does it manage me? What I spend my time on tells me a lot about my attention and my affection and what I hold close to my heart. Where do I protect dedicated time to speak to the Lord? 
Where do I protect time to hear from the Lord? Those are really big ones for me. Where do I carve that time out to spend with the Lord? And and here's what I need you to understand. Just close your eyes for a minute while you listen to this because I need you to consider something personally. The Bible is about us applying this to our lives, not our neighbor's lives, no matter how tempting that might be. Each of you has a tendency and a temptation to waste time in a specific area. I want you to think about it, okay? I'm gonna give you five little examples that I came up with, and I want you to see where you fall. Number one, the procrastinator. Lazy. Needs discipline. Finds themselves idly spending time in efforts that really don't mean anything at all. They're not productive. They're not productive for you. They're not productive for the kingdom. They're not productive for your family. They're not productive for any of the goals that you've set in your life. They're just procrastination and idleness. Wasting away the most valuable commodity I have. Number two, the easily addicted. The easily addicted. Wrong pursuits. We all have felt this at times where I'm passionate about something that God could probably care less about. Sports, hobbies, fun, thing, luxuries, comforts, and I'm just spending all types of time and energy on these things, and they won't make a bit of difference. C, or the third one, the easily distracted by curiosities. You ever met someone that's always like, squirrel, squirrel, can't ever focus, always being distracted, unfocused, needs clarity, needs purpose. The fourth one, the workaholic, driven for the wrong kingdom, won't rest, won't let anyone else rest either, by the way. Number five, the family man, loves his kids and turns them into idols. I've said this before because I read it and it stuck with me. Uh, Everyone got really mad about Disney trying to go sneak in and take your kids, but club baseball got them a long time ago. Now here's here's what I want to submit to you. Not only are you probably, do you probably have a tendency in at least one of these areas, I have done all five. I can find areas of my life and times and seasons of my life where every single one of these things was a major problem in my life. And all of them, all of them lack an urgency for the kingdom. Your time matters because it's limited. Nobody sits around, (laughs) here's how I know. No one that you visit on their deathbed Ever's like, I wish I'd worked more hours. I wish I'd played more golf. What? No, no, no. Priorities get clarified when we know death is imminent. People on their deathbed have a real clear view of the regret of where they didn't spend time wisely. Here's all I'm trying to tell you. Live every day like you're dying today. Live like you're dying every day. Wake up with this urgency. The time is short, and today might be my last day. And it will change your perspective on how to spend time. Because today might be your last day. Amen? You don't choose. 
We don't know how long we have. This theme of urgency, of the urgency of the gospel and the urgency of our time here on earth is echoed from the moment Jesus starts his mission and and all throughout the New Testament. You hear this over and over and over again trying to remind us that time here is limited. John 9, 4 says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Revelation 3.11 says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Matthew 24.42-44 says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be urgent and spend your time wisely. Verse 17, therefore... Whenever we see a therefore, it means he just said something we should pay attention to. So he says, you need to look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is a tie back to Ephesians 5.10. Ephesians 5.10 is a verse I absolutely love because it's something that Paul tells multiple Christians and multiple churches in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.10 says, and try, try, this is the word I love, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That means it's not always easy to tell, Amen. It requires effort to determine where we spend our time and how to do it wisely. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I want you to consider what the Christian walk would look like if we weren't striving, yearning, desiring to discern what it looked like to please the Lord. Imagine you never had to ask God what was pleasing. You just... Well, I'm going to generally kind of live a moral life, and I'm, I think I'm doing pretty good. I guess I'm doing pretty good. I hope I'm doing pretty good <laughs> all the way to my grave. That, that is not the Christian life. The, the Christian life talks about an earnestness in which we fervently are seeking the will of God in our life to, to try and discern what is pleasing to God, to use our time wisely, to use our resources wisely that it's not easy to do, and it requires effort on our part. Now, does this mean that we don't know the will of the Lord? There's some different opinions on this in the church. Uh, Here's what we do know. Here's the first thing. We know that the will of God is for our transformation into Christ-likeness. We know that is pleasing to God. We know that is the will of God. God, The scripture is very clear about the Christian walk that that it is our sanctification and transformation over time to look more and more like Jesus. But we also know that God put his Holy Spirit in us and the Holy Spirit is alive and real and it's not just some historical thing like here's what the Holy Spirit did 2,000 years ago. 
The Holy Spirit is active every single day doing work in your life and it requires your effort, your attention, your affection, actually seeking where and how God would change you. So we have scripture, we have the Bible, it's infallible, it's never wrong, amen? Amen. Making sure I'm still talking to the right people. Okay. But we also have the Holy Spirit who caused men to write the Bible, who wrote the Bible, the Holy Spirit, in us, working on us all the time. And here's the thing. They never disagree. Did you know that? So when we're like, man, I... I think the Spirit's telling me to do something, and I don't think Scripture agrees. That's an us problem, not a God problem. Amen? That requires us to seek God, seek understanding, seek wise counsel. We often lack understanding of both Scripture and the work of the Spirit, and it requires us to seek, to put effort into, to pursue understanding in these areas. That's why wise counsel, meaning people that love Jesus, love the church, and love you in that order, are absolutely a mandate in your life, a command in your life. Because you're going to have blind spots, you're going to do weird things, you're going to get emotional, None of you guys get emotional, right? Okay, never mind. Just me. I'm going to get emotional. And I'm going to go run off down a path somewhere because of my emotions. And it would be wise counsel in my life. They're going to tap me on my shoulder and go, brother, I love you. I don't think that's the play. Let's talk about why. Amen? Now, so super important. I know you know this, but I'm going to remind you of this. When we read the Bible, when we listen to sermons, when we're talking to God, when we see the truths of the Bible and the truths of Scripture, primarily our job is not to take it and go, I'm going to apply that to other people I know. Karen really needs this. Wish she was reading her Bible more. I should tell her about it. If as you hear scripture, if as you hear sermons, if as you read scripture, your primarily, primary thought is about whether or not some other brother or sister is living out scripture, I'm just going to caution you that should be a, at least a yellow flag, maybe a red flag, that you have got a distorted idea of what the work of the Spirit in your life is intended to do. Intended to change you. Most of the time. And through you, other people. The the average American Christian needs to spend a whole lot less time applying the Bible to other people. And a whole lot more time applying the Bible to themselves. More time praying for and encouraging other believers. Less time listing out the things you think other people are doing wrong or poorly. Like... 
And I've used this standard for a long time when I talk to other Christian brothers and sisters who, who tend to get really critical on social media. And I go, listen, all I want you to do is I want you to read through the things that you've posted or commented on on social media. And if it's not a 10 to 1 ratio of encouragement versus correction, I'm just going to submit to you, you've got a problem. 10 to 1. Because if we go back and we look at the number of times that Christians are told to encourage one another... And, and submit to one another and hold one another up versus the number of times they're told to correct one another, we're going to get about a 10 to 1 ratio. We just don't like that. Amen? Because I, if, I'm, if I'm honest, the people that tend to be really vocal on social media tend to be about 10 to 1 the opposite way. Maybe more than 10 to 1. Maybe like finding something encouraging is actually kind of hard to find in the whole thing. You just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and possible social media is not the platform for you. Never think about that? Might be a good time to delete it. That was a truth alarm out there. I heard it. <laughs> More time praying for and encouraging other believers. Less time listing out things you think they're doing wrong or poorly. So I'm, I spend time as I read scripture, as I listen to uh, brothers uh, preach the gospel. I, I like to listen to sermons online. And, and, I, and, and I'm evaluating my own walk and, I, and I'm using that to highlight in my life areas that God would convict me of, encourage, prompt me, change me, direct me, and less time concerned about how it applies to my brother or sister in Christ. So if I haven't, been convicted by God this week about something in my life while seeking God, I probably should stop expecting other people to have that experience either. Amen? So I'm primarily concerned with my walk. My walk. Verse 18. So verse 17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. That is just a great word, debauchery. You should be honest. I feel like it's a good pirate word. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, there's some thought that, that he's talking about this because they lived in a very hedonistic world. In the first century, first century Roman Empire, most of this Greek culture was very hedonistic. Um, it was basically like, like uh, there were a lot of cities from Corinth to Ephesus to other cities that were kind of like Vegas. And, and, and you know what I mean by like just very hedonistic, very about self, very about pleasure, very about you. And so there's some thought that you know maybe maybe what he's talking about is he's trying to correct some stuff culturally. I don't think so. I don't think that's what we see here at all. He has to do that in some areas, particularly with the Corinthians. Man, the Corinthians. I like the black sheep of the Christian family. Okay. Corinth was like the Wild West biker bar of the Bible. Okay, anyways, some other day. Uh, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's actually a really important thing that I want to show you here, and it, and it matters a great deal, and I think it matters for a lot more than simply wine. And I know that we're Baptists, but it does say drunk, not drink, right? So 
just we, we, I hope we're still holding on to the idea that the Bible doesn't say that drinking alcohol is a sin. That's not what it says. In fact, it's very consistent that it doesn't say that. What it says is don't be drunk. And here's what it's actually pushing towards when, uh, because it makes a comparison with being filled with the Spirit. And, and so this is going to end up applying to a lot of the anything that would impair our judgment. So, so we can take this even further than alcohol. We could actually get into marijuana. We could get into to narcotics. We could get into prescription painkillers. We get into a lot of things that are used in such a way to create an escape from reality and then impair judgment. Ephesians 5, 8 would say it this way, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Back to the same theme we keep talking about. Walk as children of the light. In Romans 13, 12 through 13 would say, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. This is a pretty consistent theme where Paul is drawing out this idea that being drunk is a problem. Why is it such a problem? Here's why. What the Bible's saying is, if you're saved, and you have the Holy Spirit, and you know Jesus, and yet you still need something other than that for escape from reality, then we have a heart problem. Does this make sense? If your faith in Christ and your indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not enough to help you deal with the realities of this world and you need something additional, we have a problem. We have a problem. We have a heart problem. We have a faith problem. We have an understanding problem of what it is that God has done and is doing in our life. And so if you need to go somewhere for peace and escape, like, like you actually need an escape from reality, and that involves alcohol, that involves marijuana, that involves any type of drug, that involves shopping, that involves, oh, you didn't like that one, did you? <laughs> that involves sports, that involves, I mean, it doesn't matter what it is, if, if suddenly you have an emotional crutch that you need, Listen, if any distraction that is not about just rest, but is rather about escaping the troubles of this world through a non-Jesus-dependent method testifies that Jesus isn't enough. What? That's right. Any, anything, any distraction that's not about resting, but it's rather about escaping the reality of this world in something that isn't dependent on Jesus, needing Jesus actually is a testifying, it's a testimony. Your life is saying, I can't handle this world because Jesus isn't enough and so I need blank. That's a problem. And that's what Paul's pointing toward. And instead, this is why we know this is what he's talking about, he gives us the comparison to that, and he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, the way the Greek tense is used here, he, it's an ongoing thing. So, so we were given the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. The Holy Spirit is always with us. It doesn't come and go. It's not like a cat. Like sometimes it shows up. Cats are just weird. It, but there are things that we can do 
to keep on being filled, to accentuate, to, to, to stoke the fire of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and, and Paul's writing this way. It's almost like he's saying, keep on being filled with the Spirit. It's an ongoing, ever-present thing. And it's a present indicative. It's a, it's a command. So he's putting a burden on you and I to go and proactively do this. It's this command of, of like every day, get up, and even though you, you have the indwelling of the Spirit, go do things that would accentuate and help you feel filled with the Spirit. That is the recipe for the Christian life. It is the recipe for dealing with the troubles of this world, not anything else. So, so what is it that we need to do to submit and pay attention to the Spirit, to be overwhelmed by God's Spirit, so that we don't intentionally or unintentionally quench the Spirit and pour cold water all over the, the fire and the coals that, that the Spirit is stoking in our life? Well, he would actually point right back to the same verse and say, if you need an escape, you're, you're quenching the Spirit. Worldly pursuits, if you're not careful, listen to me. Things that are neutral, things that are fine, they're, maybe they're good, but worldly pursuits will quench the spirit in your life. The things you put your heart into that are not of God, they're not bad, they're just not of God, will quench the spirit. Listen, for a lot of us, because of the way... Uh, the way the media has changed, right? The, the, just the, the way the internet and uh, social media and our phones, oh my Lord, <laughs> uh, and, and television and streaming services and just the ubiquitous nature of the way we get information. For a lot of us, let me just be really, really frank. Um, network and internet news is just harming Christian lives in this country. It is harming them. It is hurting them. It is quenching the spirit in this country. You were not called to be a disciple of Fox News or Breitbart or PragerU. You're not a disciple of that. You were not called to be a disciple of Mother Jones or MSNBC or CNN. You didn't give your life for that, and they won't give their life for you. Only Christ did that. You were called to be a disciple of Christ. And the consumption of news from non-God-glorifying organizations is insane, the number of hours, the amount of attention that that gets from Christian brothers and sisters in this country. Mo in fact, everything I just mentioned, they're not even neutral news sources anymore. If you could back up 50 years, 70 years, and they could look at the way this stuff is being labeled as news, people would be confused because it's entertainment, not news. Every one of these companies is making money off evoking an emotional reaction from you. And the angrier you get, the more you watch, and the more money they make. And we are lining their pockets. Stop it. Turn it off. Find a better way to be informed. And if you can't, stop being informed. I'd rather you be an idiot politically and love Jesus. Amen. Who cares? 
Man, if I major in Jesus and I'm kind of a moron with everything else, things are still great. Amen? Amen. And if you think that turning off the network news or the internet news is an extreme example, try cutting your hand off if it causes you to sin or plucking your eye out. Amen? Stop it. Those, those narratives are making their way into the church and I counsel family after family after family and I have to stop them in the middle of a sentence. I go, where in the world did you get that from? And it's always some news source. Stop that. It's crazy. It has no place in here. It doesn't glorify God. The Bible... The Apostle Paul is going to go a step further. He's going to tell us what not to do, but then thankfully, he's going to tell us what we should do in its place. So he doesn't just tell us, stop doing these things, and I hope you figure it out. That'd be rough. Verse 19, he's going to tell us, and here, here it is, as I go way over on time again. Verse 19, addressing one another. So here's what we're going to do. Okay, we're going to not do these other things. We're going to not look for this escape. We're going to not look for these pursuits that don't glorify God. We're going to not waste our time like we're unwise. But instead, we're going to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for, and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Passionate affection. Passionate affection. We're going to stir up our affection for Jesus. This is the third time probably in the last two months we've talked about this. We are going to intentionally do things that stir up our emotions and our affections for Jesus, not for an election, not for a politician, not for a football game, for Jesus. And I want you to see something that really matters here, and it, it's wonderful that we did this, this calendar like a year ago, and it landed on Group Sunday. But imagine, I just, here's my question, how do you address one another by yourself? Right? I mean, that's a really weird conversation. It's like the castaway thing where he's got the little volleyball with the handprint, he's like, Wilson! That's weird. You need people. You can't address one another if there's not a one another. You got to get into community with people so that you can encourage them and they can encourage you because by yourself, you're pretty discouraged. So there's a what not to do and the what to do involves you finding other people that Jesus died for, was resurrected for, has saved, regenerated, put his spirit inside them and now you guys got to do life together. Or else it's going to get really weird and really toxic and we're going to go back to our pre-Jesus days which means we're just going back to the vomit. And give thanks. Thanks. This attitude of gratitude. This idea that you have to constantly recenter yourself in a broken, dark world to remember that you are a children of the King, that you walk in the light, that you've been redeemed. I was singing today, and I, it took me five minutes to just stop. I couldn't even greet people, I was crying too much. 
Because that's what reminding ourselves of what Christ did for us does for us. It lets us live in a state of gratitude. The Bible calls you to stir up one another to good works, to bear with one another's burdens, to submit to one another. All of that requires a one another. You can't do that simply in the 90 minutes or so that we'll spend on a Sunday morning. It's going to take more than that. This is not enough. It's going to take more. You need more. I need more. My small group is tired of getting text messages from me. What are you guys doing? How are you guys doing today? Tell me what's going on. I need people. You need people, amen? Because this life is tough on your own. And that's why this is a command addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You're going to find people that love Jesus. And you're going to talk to them about, you're not just going to talk to them about life, you're going to talk about Jesus. What's Jesus doing in you? What do you see Jesus doing in them? Because it will stir us up to good works. And it will cause us to be continually filled with the Spirit. We need that. I'm going to pray for us today on our group launch Sunday. I'm going to pray for you specifically that has struggled to find good community, people that will push into your life and love you. And then um, we're actually going to participate in a really awesome church ordinance that we get to do together. It's called communion or the Lord's Supper. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Father God, I thank you so much that not only did you send your son for me. To die, to be resurrected, but God, you, you, didn't, you didn't just leave us where we were at, you sent your spirit. And God, you know that we're, you know that I am too weak, even with your spirit, to do anything other than make another mess of my life. And so you put people in my life, God. And I thank you for the church, the bride of Christ, for all of the difficulty of doing life together, God. It is by your design. I thank you for people that are sitting here or listening and watching this sermon, God, as your spirit works in their life to remind them of how much we need others to do this life together. God, I thank you that you just keep chasing us. No matter how much we would ignore your spirit, no matter how often we would fail at the things you're pulling us towards, God, that like a loving father, you just continue to come back and offer us opportunities to know you more deeply and to build better relationships, God. I thank you for how much you love us. God, I thank you for the people that you've brought into this service online and in person uh, who just desperately needed to hear today that you love them and they are loved by this church. In Jesus' name, amen.